You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Let me welcome everyone uh, on behalf of the Carnegie Endowment. Uh, I am Jim Collins. I am the director of the Russia and Eurasia program, for those who may not uh, know me. And um, I am really quite honored today to be joined by a friend and colleague who is well-known in this town, known to, to probably most people in this audience. Uh, Dmitry Trenin is uh, the director of our Carnegie Moscow Center. He is a respected and, and recognized thinker, I, I, is my view, on what Russia is about and becoming and where its world fits. How does Russia see its world? He's the author of an, two extraordinary books, I think. One is called Post-Imperium. It's his latest book. And it really addresses the question of, uh, you know, what's Russia all about in its region? How does it see its neighborhood? It's, how does it deal with its past and its future? And another book that uh, I, I think is, I also commend is, uh, was Getting Russia Right, a book a couple of years ago, I think, in which he tried to discuss what's emerging in Russia as a new society, what's motivating Russia. Well, all of this kind of leads up, I think, to today's topic. Um, uh, Dmitry is <clears throat> very well placed, it seems to me, on... Uh, as someone who is an observer, a thoughtful uh, uh, interpreter of his own country's developments. And he's especially well qualified to talk to us at a moment when clearly everybody is a sense that something's going on that's not routine, it's not ordinary. Um, in the last six months, there have been all kinds of hypotheses about how different Russia is today from what it was yesterday, uh, and each day seems to bring yet another uh, idea. And so I've asked uh, Dmitry uh, when we were, I asked Dmitry when we were putting this talk together to, to try to provide us some perspective about the events of next Sunday. What has shaped them? What's different about this Sunday as opposed to some other Sundays in the past? Uh, and what's the real meaning of all this as we look at what happens on Monday morning? Because uh, let's assume this this is the last first and last round, but even if it isn't, if we have a second round of election, uh, there aren't many who doubt the outcome. And so the question really is going to be about what's ahead of the new president as he has to govern a society that seems to be in flux. And so, Dimitri, um, my question is, what's going on? <laughs> Jim, thank you for this, uh, for this introduction. Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's, uh, it's a great uh, honor, of course, to be sitting here and, uh, and talking with all of you. It's, uh, it's not a just some Sunday. It's uh, perhaps the most uh, interesting, if not the most important election that Russia will have since uh, 1996. But it's, uh, as Jim has just 
implied it's uh, more than an election. There's something definitely going on. And uh, to me, this is a, um, a moment in history when, uh, as Hegel would have said, uh, the quantity transform is, transforms itself into new quality. So you basically had, right up until December 4, 2011, a growing middle class in Russia who were focused uh, primarily and sometimes exclusively on themselves, on their homes, on their kids' education, on their cars, on their vacations abroad, and other such-like subjects. Essentially, they learned, and that was a hard way of learning, uh, in the 20 years that followed the collapse of the Soviet Union, that the only path to survival and success was the individual path. And all those people have succeeded. But having succeeded in their professions, in their lives as individuals, um, they also noticed that the previous agenda had run its course. And any further progress can not be individually based. So you can have a nice car, but the roads will still be bumpy. You can have um, a nice apartment, but uh, no one takes care of the elevator. No one takes care of the staircase. Uh, you may have uh, um, won in a, a lot of praise from your peers around the world, but your own government, you feel, is not treating you like a citizen. But the reason why they're not treating people as citizens is that because those people have not yet become citizens. You do not wait for the government to elevate you to citizenship. You, you have to work for that. And I think that's what happened in December 2011. The people who uh, had spent previously all their lives in the individual domains are now stepping into the public square. This is what's happening. And in the last 20 years, it was the public square in Russia that was most neglected. Individual spaces were quite lively, quite interesting. In fact, in the book that uh, Jim has alluded to, the, uh, the Getting Russia Right one, uh, I was arguing that the most important thing happening in Russia was not the political. It was the social, based on new economics, based on new environment, globalized environment, and all these things. So I believe that this is the most, the most important thing that's happening. I would add a couple of points to that. There's a revitalization as a result of what we've just seen, a revitalization of the previously dormant political parties. There's a partial reestablishment of the Duma as, at minimum, a place for a debate. Um, and that is uh, changing the way that Russia is governed. Because in my own thinking, slightly facetious, uh, Russia's governing formula, Putin's governing formula for Russia, right up until December 2011, was authoritarianism with the consent of the governed. 
Now, this consent is being withdrawn. It has not been withdrawn yet, but it's been taken away, uh, at least partially. And that is what's, what's, what, what's happening. Uh, I think I, I, I might stop here to, in order to uh, allow you to ask more questions before we uh, turn it over to um, the well, audience. I go, go ahead a bit further with this, okay. uh, Dimitri, and, and let's, um, uh, let's uh, lay out a few of your thoughts, okay. and then we'll, we'll turn to the audience. Right. Um, well, after what happened in uh, December 2011, um, the authorities have made um, some concessions. They could not ignore and they would not repress this new Russian awakening. Uh, there have been a few um, changes proposed to the Russian laws, uh, reinstalling the uh, election, direct elections with some qualifications, direct elections of governors, making it easier for political parties to get registered. Um, there has been some drive to um, allow for uh, wider election monitoring in Russia. Uh, I was very stunned personally. I was keeping my fingers crossed as I was watching the uh, I was I was traveling on that day as I was watching this first huge demonstration in Bolotnaya Square on December 10. I was keeping my fingers crossed that it will not come to clashes. Now, the interesting and stunning thing is that the police, notorious for its uh, pretty rough handling of, um, of protesters, uh, was exceedingly polite on that day and has continued to be exceedingly polite right until this very moment. Uh, there has been some partial TV opening. The people who previously... Uh, would not be allowed to um, uh, express themselves on television like Boris Nemtsov, Vladimir Rushkov, and, and a few others who uh, collectively are known here and elsewhere as the liberal opposition. That's not the, that, that's not the entire opposition. We, we, we must be very clear about that. The liberal section of the opposition, uh, they were allowed on television to take part in, uh, in, in, in the talk shows, etc., uh, the protesters are breaking new ground in Russian politics. Uh, the older generation looks really old. And uh, you, 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 would, you would, of course, I don't have to tell it in this, in this audience, but uh, most Russian party chiefs who sit on the Duma have, been, have spent more time as party chairman than Mr. Putin has spent as Russia's president. So you have people who've been there for 20 years. And now there is a, a clear realization that uh, those oldies um, uh, should be on their way out and will be on their way out. And there's a new generation of leaders that's emerging, people who have not been heard of two or three years ago, the bloggers, the, the uh, cultural figures, uh, that, that gives uh, Russian politics a different flavor, a different um, energy, and that, I think, also translates into uh, the, the future pattern of Russian, uh, of Russian politics. It's also the new issues that are coming to the fore. The old issues, uh, the debate that, uh, that's been there since the, the days of Gorbachev, in fact, has been over, is being overhauled. There are other things that are... Uh, important that are being discussed and, and new people who are expressing those things. 
the government has not always been just polite to the protesters. There has been some backlash or, or making concessions. There has been some government backlash. There was a clear refusal, blank refusal, I should say, refusal to uh, yield to protesters' demands such as the, uh, the annulment of the Duma election, widely believed to be, uh, to be rigged, um, the uh, sacking of the chief of the Central Electoral Commission, who is held responsible by many people in the opposition for having rigged the vote. Um, and there's been some wrist wrapping in, in, in media circles, so some uh, news outlets. So you would, you would say that this is the counter movement to the one opening television, let's say, to more, to more voices. There, there was this counter movement of restricting the voices that have been, uh, that have been relatively free or, or, or quite free uh, in the last uh, few years. Uh, and there's a clear insistence in the Kremlin, or let's say in Mr. Putin's circles, that Putin has to win in the first ballot. There should be no second ballot. The second ballot would be a sign of weakness. The second ballot would usher in chaos and destabilization. So all hands are out. All, all, um, all the resources are being brought uh, to assure Putin's victory in the first round. Now, let me say a little bit about the election itself. Uh, there are some media opinion polls that suggest that Putin's popularity has soared to two-thirds of the population. I don't know. Um, there's clearly been a, a massive effort to get as many um, people to vote for Putin as possible. It's, it's a very important and very serious election. I would say that Putin still can rely on the support of 50-plus percent of, of the people for many reasons. Uh, he is a champion of, uh, and he portrays him, himself that way, as a champion of uh, the interests of um, the, uh, the lower uh, classes of Russia's population. He's been raising pensions. He's refused to raise the pensions age. Uh, he's been uh, uh, nationalistic uh, to appeal to what a lot of people think about uh, uh, Russia and its neighbors in particular. He's been tough in foreign policy. The things that appeal to his base uh, are all there. All the buttons have been, have been pressed. But there's some, some other uh, element that we need not um, uh, ignore. I remember a conversation with uh, Grigory Yevlinsky, another stalwart of Russian uh, politics, his, the, the founder of Russia's um, uh, Yabloko Party, the Democratic Party, who's been well, he's no longer chairman officially, but he is the, the, the dominant figure of that party still. He was having a, an election rally in a provincial Russian, Russian city, and he, he talked and he looked at the audience and he zeroed in on, on, on a person, a lady, who was very, listening very intently, was very sympathetic, was nodding, was smiling at the right moments. So when the whole thing was over, he went up to that lady and, and asked her how she liked his speech, and she said, it's a marvelous speech. Absolutely tops. Uh, and then Yavlinsky said, um, will you vote for me then? And she said, no. Now he asked why. And, he, and she said, now young, young man, you need first to get, he was young then, uh, young man, you need to go uh, to get to the Kremlin first. And then I'll vote for you. <laughs> uh, which 
you know, in a nutshell, explains the attitude of a sizable part of the Russian. People are not stupid, but people, um, people actually expect uh, bad things coming from the government. So in a way, better the devil but who, who you know, better the one who will not uh, rock the boat, the boat too much, better the one who will uh, ensure some kind of order, whatever. So that's, that's, uh, that's clearly a, a, an important factor. Uh, the, the whole thing will not be over on election day or even on election night. Uh, I would expect uh, many people in, um, in Russia, in particular in Moscow, some other big cities, uh, to disagree with the verdict, disagree with the official results. Uh, they will claim that uh, the vote had either been rigged despite all the web cameras, uh, was rigged away from the cameras, let's say. Or they will say that the whole election campaign uh, was not free. So Putin had so much... Putin never, uh, never went on vacation, so he traveled as prime minister, and yet he was on a campaign trail. Um, he had so much more time on television than, than everyone else combined. So all these things will be heard, and I think there'll be um, protests against Putin's election. For a lot of people, this is simply um, um, impossible to have uh, another six years and potentially more of Vladimir Putin. Uh, and that will be a very dangerous moment, I think. Uh, whether the country will find, and Putin, whether the Putin camp and uh, the, opposite, the opposition camp, whether they will be able to find a way to manage that protest and that rejection of Putin's legitimacy um, in a way that will not destabilize in a big way the situation of the country. So that uh, demonstrations are held, but they are held in a peaceful way and no one tries to provoke anyone into overreacting. And this is something that you cannot take for granted. Um, Mr. Putin will clearly uh, emerge as a person uh, without uh, enough legitimacy in the eyes of, of so many people in Russia and, frankly, so many people around the world. The people who protest against Putin's uh, continued rule in Russia will find um, a powerful echo in this country. They will find an echo in in Europe and elsewhere. So we will have, I think, um, a domestic policy issue that will translate uh, or transport itself into a, um, a foreign policy issue, uh, an important issue, and not uh, not an easy one to to deal with. Um, and there's an issue of elite cohesion, whether the elite, which has stayed more or less. Uh, um, more or less in one piece. Of course, there are, there are divisions, but, but there has been no split within the elite on, of the kind that, exi that, that existed elsewhere in the former Soviet, uh, Soviet space when there were big uh, political changes. Uh, but this uh, cohesion is not to be taken for, for granted, and I would imagine it eroding to a significant degree. People, a lot of people who may be even the people who supported Mr. Putin and the current system for, for a very long time, almost as, as long as it's existed, may be thinking that uh, now is the time to, um, 
to have a big overhaul, for a big change. And someone who was the, the standard bearer of the present system uh, perhaps uh, needs to be retired and somebody else needs to be brought in. This, uh, I believe, is, uh, is, is quite possible. What are the implications of this election for policy? Uh, there has been uh, an idea of Putin uh, 2.0, Putin the reformer. And uh, as you may have noticed, uh, Mr. Putin, although he refused to take part in, uh, in um, uh, debates, presidential debates, uh, he issued, under his signature, um, half dozen major articles on all important issues from uh, the general strategy for Russia to ethnic relations to the economy to national security to foreign policy. Um, and those have been uh, carefully prepared by Putin's staff uh, with, with a lot of academics, experts involved. And uh, frankly, a lot of the things in those uh, articles make, uh, make sense. Now, the problem is, uh, it's, it's somewhat strange that the articles come from somebody who has been in power for the past 12 years. There's, there's a lot of criticism of the current system in those articles and a lot of, a lot of thinking about this, uh, this, the, how this uh, needs to be changed. Um, the question is, however, does Mr. Putin have, uh, uh, have people to implement those policies? Um, one looks around and one sees uh, an appreciable amount of stability in Putin's entourage. So people may change positions, but they are kept within this orbit. Um, and then there is um, another big issue, perhaps the biggest issue of them all, uh, what to do about uh, the, um, the crooks and uh, thieves in the famous phrase of the blogger Navalny. And you cannot uh, seriously uh, maintain that corruption stops at the Kremlin wall. And this is a big issue, uh, for corruption has not been, um, as some people say, it's not, uh, it's, it's not a disease, um, it's not a problem, it's a feature of the system. It's not that some malfunctioning. It's the, the heart of the system. And there's a lot of truth in that. You, you buy support. You buy people's support in politics by allowing them to do various things while they are in power. And people in Russia, a lot of them, get rich while they are in power. And that is a big issue. And uh, I would wish Mr. Putin... Uh, been able to resolve all these things, but, um, but I have my doubts about that. So Putin 2.0 would be a great thing if it happened. I don't think it's very likely. What does the future hold? I would say that um, this change will not stop on election day or on election night, although the intensity of demonstrations may, be, may vary. The process, as Gorbachev used to say, is there, and it will continue. And I think it will continue uh, in the direction of change and more change and more change. Um, you would uh, be right to consider the present political 
set up in Russia to be, and, and the characters who make it, to be essentially on the way out. And uh, that is, uh, that is not... Uh, Dmitry, could uh, please turn off your cell phones if you've got any on or Blackberries. Um, I do not have a timeline for that. You people uh, are notoriously surprised when they, uh, when they think about developments. You can never be right about what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. You either say what's going to happen or when uh, to, wait, to, to expect change. But, but change there will be, and, uh, and I would say uh, massive change. And uh, hopefully it will not be uh, an abrupt change. It will not happen overnight. It will be happening in, in fits and starts, but it will be happening over a fairly long period of time. An ideal uh, future for Russia, in my view, would be for this absolute monarchy of uh, Mr. Putin be transformed into a constitutional monarchy, with Mr. Putin maybe there, but with his um, powers, these actual powers being uh, being cut, and his uh, and and other institutions stepping in as serious institutions, the Duma, the courts, the media, and others. I know it's not going to be that easy, but I hope that at the end of the day, Russia will uh, transform itself into a republic. It would be at, in the true sense of the word, with people, with all pe- all sorts of people, whether they are conservative or liberal or socialist. Uh, buying into that republic. Russia is not going to be all liberal. It's not going to be all communist again. But uh, the trick is to make the various strands stitched together as they are stitched in the Russian national flag, say the white for being for the conservatives, etc. Uh, and very lastly, let me say what it all means for the reset and the U.S.-Russian relations. Um, there's a lot of insecurity in Mr. Putin's entourage, and you can feel it. You can feel it uh, by Putin's own references to the Department of State as being behind uh, the protests in Moscow and elsewhere, which is very interesting. Uh, It's an upgrade or a downgrade, I don't know. In the Soviet days, it used to be the agency that was the principal agency (laughs) for these things. Now it's Department of State. Um, Interesting. Uh, it's also uh, palpable in the welcome that uh, uh, our good friend and uh, colleague, uh, former colleague, uh, now Ambassador McFall, um, uh, has had in Moscow. You can, um, you can see the rationale here in, being in, 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 in the attempt of trying to discredit the opposition through highlighting their links to the United States of America. Um, but uh, the irrational thing, which may be even more important, the paranoid thing, is to believe that the author of Russia's unfinished revolution has descended upon Moscow to finish the job, which I think a lot of people believe. And that, that's, that's more of a problem, I think, than painting uh, liberals and Democrats and, and a few others as being uh, in the pay of the Department of State. Um, I think that what will happen during and after the election will weigh in heavily on how the relationship between the United States and Russia will continue after, after March 4. Um, 
how to take Mr. Putin's new mandate. It will not be an easy question. And uh, clearly, um, people in this town and people uh, around the world, primarily in, in Europe, uh, will be watching very closely and they will be making uh, judgments on uh, the uh, legitimacy of the outcome of the election. So this is a moment, I think, of, of, of true statesmanship. One cannot uh, keep mum about the things one sees around oneself. And at the same time, one has the responsibility of uh, maintaining a sound relationship with, um, I would say, still an important country. Now, how this will be managed, um, I don't know. I hope it will be managed uh, in a thoughtful and serious way so that uh, emotions don't, uh, don't get uh, over and at the same time that uh, values are um, highlighted and, uh, and, and sympathies are in the right place. Um, Putin has a, an agenda with the United States, which um, I think has the cent- as, as its centerpiece has the issue of missile defense. This, this is a big thing weighing on his mind. How he resolves that will have an important um, uh, will be an important factor in U.S.-Russian relations. Um, at this point, we don't know whether the Chicago NATO-Russia Council will be held at the summit level. They have not decided yet. It's, uh, it's important how they decide, but they will not decide, I think, before they hear um, how Mr. Putin's very likely election to the presidency of Russia will be seen in this town, how the public will react, how the, the administration will react. Uh, but it's important that um, this domestic situation in Russia, which is, I think, at the same time dangerous, but also promising in, in terms of changing the country, transforming the country in the normal way. I think Russia is getting ready for the next stage, which is the political stage. It's done social, it's done economic, now it's the, it's the turn for po- the political thing to be uh, taken care of. But it would be um, tragic, even, I would say, if uh, at this uh, very moment um, of uh, important change in Russia, the reaction from this stand will be, um, will be less than thoughtful. I hope it will be very serious and very thoughtful, but, but you, cannot, you cannot be absolutely sure because this, town is, this country is also going through its election campaign. Let me finish on, on this note. Uh, 2012 is clearly, a, like all leap years, it's an election year. And uh, Georgi Arbatov's memorable phrase that elections are bad time for good politics and uh, good time for bad politics is as true as ever. And clearly it's true in Russia. But uh, there's life, hopefully, beyond 2012. Uh, we need to um, think very carefully, I think, not only about the vicissitudes of Russia's domestic politics, but on, on, about the future of the U.S.-Russia relationship, which I would say is, uh, is um, over-dramatized in Russia and um, um, undervalued in this country, to be very frank about that. 
the reset has been very useful. It has been very successful in my view. But no reset equals a policy. Reset is not a policy. It's uh, something that you reach out for to start drafting a policy. And I think we're still at the drafting board. Hopefully next year will be a time for policymaking. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much, Dimitri. Um, You have put on the table any number of questions, I suspect, in the minds of our listeners. So I think um, my only uh, one question to you would be the following. Uh, I agree with you that election years are often a bad time for good politics and vice versa. Um, we have one set of events coming up here that that is inevitably at least going to define all sorts of um, uh, commentary and, and uh, heated rhetoric. And that's the debate over permanent normal trade relations and Russia's accession to the WTO. I don't know exactly when this is going to happen. But, you know, the, the Congress is going to have to take up this issue, and there are already the beginnings of discussion. Senator Baucus was in, in Moscow uh, to discuss uh, the, this issue with his Russian colleagues. And so uh, I think the, the forecast is for some pretty nasty arguments and rhetoric and so forth, as well as the positive arguments. What do you think the reaction in Moscow will be to all of this? Because it will, be, it will be a, have a lot of unpleasant discussion. Well, I think that uh, assuming that Russia formally joins the WTO in the middle of this year, uh, Russians will be uh, a bit more relaxed about uh, the U.S. debate because uh, they will be making uh, the argument that uh, essentially it's um, an internal U.S. issue between U.S. Congress and the U.S. business community. Uh, the uh, uh, non-granting of the permanent normal trade relationship status to Russia would mean that uh, U.S. Uh, companies will be discriminated against uh, in, um, in, in trade with Russia. Yeah. Again, can I ask uh, everybody to turn off cell phones and Blackberries? Uh, so I think that people will be looking at that. People will be making um, comments, and uh, many of them will not be very nice or pleasant comments. And uh, I understand uh, there have been some vicious remarks in the Russian media about uh, the United States. There was one even uh, quoted in today's uh, post, uh, which uh, sort of... Uh, um, told me that the newspaper called Pravda is still in existence. You cannot get it in, <laughs> at Moscow kiosks. So you wondered. Well, I thought it existed only in the Internet, but uh, fine, it, it exists as a, printed, as a printed version as well, and, pe and people are paying attention. Good. Um, but I think that uh, there, will be, uh, there will be a debate in, in the Duma that will shadow, that will follow the U.S. debate, and people will get, get, give vent to their feelings. And looking at, at the composition of some of the Duma committees, 
uh, you can make sure that uh, pretty caustic or, or outrageous, or however you want to call them, remarks, as well as uh, more soberly critical remarks, will be made. But I think that the Russians will essentially feel it's, it's the United States deciding between its interests and its emotions. And God help them. Uh, maybe that's, 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 that's the attitude. Okay, let me turn this now over to our, our audience, and uh, let's begin. Jessica, i give you the first. Uh, Jessica Matthews at Carnegie. Dimitri, 0 to 100%, what do you believe is the likelihood that Putin will serve six years? Um, that's a good question. I would say it's, uh, we're sitting today, it's tw- the 29th of February, 2012. I would say it's... Um, it's about 50-50. No, no, uh, I will, you know, I, 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 let, me, let, me, let me explain. I think that if Mr. Putin sees uh, the need, and he will not see the need unaided, unassisted, you can only do, people often do good things only under the pressure of circumstances or, or under the pressure of other people. You do not do good things because you have a kind heart or or a wonderful, intelligent head, whatever. You do that because you, that, that's, that's the least bad option. And if Mr. Putin is not the only actor on the Russian stage, there are other actors. And if those other actors prevail on Mr. Putin, and if Mr. Putin sees that the only uh, way for him to, um, to preserve what he wants to preserve, and frankly, I think he cares about Russia. Mr. Putin. He has his own way of looking at Russia. I would disagree with him on a number of issues. But I think that the guy is, uh, you know, he has his own vision, he has his own view, and he's, he cares about the country. And if he, if he cares about the c- country enough to uh, preserve his presidency, and he's been, very, um, he's been very sensitive to how the, the office of the president is viewed in Russia. He had that, one, that royal funeral for Mr. Yeltsin, whom, with whom he had a lot of disagreement, and whose period is not really favored by Putin's people. Uh, in that case, I think he will go uh, down the path of what I call a constitutional monarchy, with allowing other uh, centers of power to emerge, maybe not as powerful as the Kremlin. Uh, clearly, you cannot, you cannot hope for that. Uh, and that's that's not uh, that that's not a, that should not be a good thing for to have several competing centers of power. If not, if somehow his um, his determination to uh, to keep the autocracy intact, which was something that doomed the Tsar a hundred years ago, um, then I think um, chances are that he will not serve out his full term. But I would, uh, I would say one thing. Uh, there will be no acquiescence in Mr. Putin's rule, whatever it is, in the six years starting this coming May than there was uh, in the eight plus four years earlier this decade or previous decade. So it, it, how much of that pressure would come from public from street protests. Is that, the, is that the driving force of the pressure he'd feel? Uh, I think the street is, uh, is one thing, but there's more than the street to it. 
uh, the Kremlin, uh, meaning not, not just the presidency, but the entire apparatus of the state, uh, they've been watching uh, public opinion as closely as any other government in the world, maybe even more closely. Because, as I said, this is autocracy, but it, it, has, it has the consent of the governed as the ind- indispensable uh, basis for, uh, for regime stability. So if uh, the, public, uh, the public attitudes turn very much in a certain direction, they will be the first to, to notice that. So it's, it's, the, it's what the people think. It's how people act. It's also how other actors act. Putin cannot hand off even a portion of his power to, to nobody, to avoid. There must be recipients ready to, um, to receive portions of the power that's, that, that are now accumulated 100% in the hands of uh, uh, Mr. Putin. For example, the Duma, uh, just, just to give you just one example. And that will, that will require a different kind of leadership from the heads of, of the parties in the Duma. And again, the present leaders are largely incapable of, of, of being such recipients. There are other people who are who are ambitious, who want to be leaders, who are rediscovering politics. They want to be in politics. They don't want to be just an adjunct to the state bureaucracy. They want to, to be uh, active and, and, and serious politicians. So um, a, lot, a lot will depend on other people. But, but I, I would still say that the, uh, the onus of responsibility lies uh, with Mr. Putin. This, this is, uh, his decision will be more important than many, than I wouldn't say all other decisions combined, but he is more important than anyone else's decision. Okay, let me go here. Harvey? Harley? Thank you. Harley Balzer, Georgetown University. Uh, I guess this question follows on Jessica's. Uh, I've been following the protests all around the country. They've been fascinating, but the organization question comes up. Uh, and what we've seen in the last week or two seems to suggest that Putin's solution to the problem of the opposition is to have lots of parties. Uh, Prokhorov is talking about creating his party. The leaders of SPS are talking about creating their party. Uh, I get the sense he would really like to see uh, you know, a new proliferation, that the new laws may make it even easier so that you could not get a unified organization that could present a real opposition. And I'm wondering if you could comment on what you've seen from the opposition in terms of future organization plans. Well, there are different, Harley, there are different uh, kinds of opposition, and you just mentioned that. There's the opposition that, that you see in the streets, and that opposition is not very well organized. I was uh, stunned and, uh, and pleased and then perplexed to see... Um, uh, the flags of the nationalists waving along the si- along, alongside the flags of the uh, liberals, along the si- alongside the flags of the communists, etc. It's, it's that's and 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 everyone was uh, was uh, sort of uh, working for change. Everyone had his own his her own view of what that change should be, um, and that to me was the beginning of a Russian nation that I referred to in my comment on the Republic of Russia. Uh, People who have very different views uh, are united on two counts. One is being Russian, and uh, you may call it patriotism, you may call it nationalism, however you want to call it. And the other thing is uh, is adherence to a a body of a set of norms and, and rules, call it democracy, call it something else. 
but that's uh, that's the good thing about that. Beyond that, uh, yes, you do have very a very diverse um, uh, opposition, um, uh, uh, very diverse opposition groups in in, in Russia. Uh, Putin's solution, um, you know. Uh, Putin was criticized when he um, made it impossible to start new parties. So there were only, let's say, four parties uh, admitted to the Duma. Let's say there were a couple of other parties that uh, were registered as parties uh, but had no chance even to get to the Duma. Now he's been criticized for allowing a uh, hundred flowers bloom. Um, you know, you get it both ways. I mean, you, you, you get criticized whatever you do or, or even if you do nothing. This is, is the nature of politics. That's fine. I would still think that uh, it's, uh, it's a good thing. It would uh, allow for uh, popular energy and political activism to find an outlet. Because you have those four parties, but you, when you, as, a, as an ordinary Muscovite, show, uh, or St. Petersburg, or Irkutskian, you come to the ballot box, you, you, there's a choice, but, uh, but you don't want to, to vote for any one of them. Your parties are not there. And there was this wonderful um, thing in the Russian election law uh, that's, that's been abolished since, that you can vote for none of the above. That, that used to be one of the more popular uh, things that people voted for. Uh, now it's, uh, it's, it's, it's no longer there, but um, no, I think it's, it's, it's actually a good thing. It will allow Nemtsov and Rizhkov to have their parties registered, and then we'll see. It's one thing to say, uh, you know, we are the opposition and we are banned from television. We cannot have a political party. Uh, we cannot have, uh, you know, any, any airtime, whatever. But if you're allowed to do that, then you will, you will gauge and other people will gauge how much uh, this or that figure can actually draw. What's, what's the support that these guys are Again, I think it will be important, and, and, and some of those guys will see that the only way for them to continue in politics will be to consolidate with some other parties. And again, one of the uh, critical um, flaws of the Russian liberal opposition was that they were notoriously uh, reluctant or, or imp it was impossible for them to unite their forces. Just impossible. But, if, I mean, if it's one thing if you want to, uh, to uh, you know, to pamper your ego, that may be a good thing. But if you want to stay in politics, this is, uh, this is not the way. So I think it's a good thing, frankly. And I would say, I would say fine, I mean, this is the right direction. You should, uh, and there will be more parties. Putin is, let me say this, Putin cannot be challenged as of today by any one figure. Had the election been between Putin and anti-Putin, I wouldn't know what the outcome uh, would be. But the election is um, between, like, not, not between. The election has a choice. It has Mr. Putin. It has the communist leader Zyuganov. It has the nationalist leader Zhirinovsky. It has Mr. Prokhorov, a liberal, a loyal liberal, whom you mentioned. And then Mr. Mironov, a sort of a crypto-social democrat. So you have a choice of, of people, men, unfortunately, at this point only. Um, and you have to, and Putin has a much stronger um, position, uh, man against man, than his party had against uh, the protest movement because it, it's, it's binary. 
Either you are for the government or against the government. Happy with the government, unhappy with the government. Now you have a choice of people. Well, you may not like Mr. Putin, but would Mr. Prokhorov be your choice? Would you like, would you, uh, do you really want Mr. Zyuganov to be the next president of Russia? Some people would. Many people would not. So. Okay. Wayne. Uh, Wayne Mary, the American Foreign Policy Council. Dimitri, just one year ago, across the street in the Peterson Institute, the rector of one of the most prestigious educational institutions in Russia said that if Putin gave himself another term as president, half of his students would leave the country. I would like you now to evaluate that prediction a year on in light of your description of this much more active public space in Russia, but also of your prediction that Putin in office again will not significantly be different than he was than in the presidency before. Well, I would say this. Um, it's a sad fact, but it's still a fact, that if you are ambitious uh, as a young person and you want to reach uh, the highest level of um, success in this world, uh, in most cases, you leave Russia. Um, this, is, this has nothing to do with Putin. It has nothing to do with the political system. It has everything to do with uh, globalization and the fact that we're not anymore confined to our little domains, call them nation states. If you want to be a, a really top-notch chemist, you go to uh, you know, the seat of uh, one of the seats of uh, high seats of uh, chemistry is in this world, and most of them will not be in Russia. Mathematician. Uh, if you want to, uh, so I can go on and on and on. So it it, uh, it it's still it's still a problem. This brain drain is a problem for Russia as well as it is for many other countries. Um, so Putin is not really essential to that. What you are talking about, I think, and I heard that argument many times, is the emotional um, uh, reaction to another 12 years of Mr. You were born maybe in Yeltsin's time, but uh, you, you started uh, learning about the world. It was Mr. Putin, and then it was Mr. Medvedev under Mr. Putin. Um, you, you want something, you want change. You want something new. You want, you're, you're just tired of that. And if you think that, um, you know, Mr. Putin is uh, coming in back into the office for another 12 years, to be succeeded by Mr. Medvedev for another 12 years. Uh, you know, we, I have a, a colleague uh, who, you, who even used to be a friend for a period of time, and he... <laughs> I won't give you the name. <laughs> and he said that was uh, 2008. We were having a nice discussion with, um, with a bunch of... Um, of, uh, I think, Japanese academics, and he said, uh, you know what? Um, he was very cocksure about Putin, Medvedev, about the, the system of power as being totally immutable, totally um, uh, impervious to any change uh, from, uh, from the outside. He said, you know what? Um, Mr. Putin will serve out his, his full term, and then Mr. Medvedev will serve out his full term. So by the time Mr. Medvedev will, uh, will uh, um, 
uh, will retire as president of Russia, he will still be younger than, than John McCain. <laughs> and uh, the conversation was taking place in 2008, and John McCain, of course, was. Um, that's, uh, you know, this, this, the same person is far less uh, confident today. He's far less self-confident. And, uh, uh, and, and, and the people who... Um, who are now thinking about leaving or staying, uh, some of them were imbued with this new, there's something in the air. Uh, for a lot of people, a demo is fun. There, there's something, blogging is fun. Uh, there are many social, new social media are fun. And many of these people uh, prefer to stay in Russia, even temporarily, they might think, because in some ways it's, it's more fun. Um, and it is, in, in, as I said, in some ways. So um, I hope that this new Russian awakening will still attract a critical mass of young and talented Russian people so that they do not, uh, do not follow the brain drain. Okay. Yes, in the, in the middle of the night. Hey, wait, for, wait for their microphone, please. Okay. Uh, Gil Rosman, Princeton University. Uh, Dimitri, I'd like you to elaborate on the foreign policy implications of what uh, Putin has been writing and saying in the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, particularly, do you see any sign after the joint veto at the Security Council of the resolution on Syria that Putin uh, will, over the coming term, uh, reinterpret his growing reliance on China? Uh, is there any sign of a strategy towards Asia uh, that changes towards China. And you may have noted that Darkin has now been uh, dropped as governor of Primorsky Krai, uh, something that might, one might have predicted a year ago when Medvedev went out to Vladivostok and was upset with the way preparations are going for the APEC summit. Uh, there's supposed to be a new strategy coming out this year on Asia. Do you, do you sense what that will be? Uh, Gil, well, thank you, first of all, for this, this question. Uh, I think Asia is, is more and more on Moscow's mind. And China has moved up to being, uh, I would say, the second most important country uh, for Russia uh, after the United States of America. And uh, it's, uh, it's Russia's biggest uh, trading partner. And it's also the country with which, um, where you've had this reversal of fortunes for, you know, almost since Russia and China first came into contact, the Russians developed a habit of looking down at the Chinese. And then within the last uh, 30 years, this entirely changed. And uh, 100 years ago, Russia was, uh, uh, was thinking about Manchuria as a yellow Russia. Uh, and the Karbina, of course, was the Russian outpost in, uh, in, in, uh, in Manchuria. And there's even a house in uh, Karbin that looks exactly the same as the house in Moscow, where the Carnegie Center has its office. So the, <laughs> <laughs> no wonder the place was called uh, Little Moscow. But today you wonder whether Khabarovsk might become the Karbin in reverse. And this is not an easy thing. This is uh, Mr. Putin, uh, for all his uh, uh, outreach to, to China, still considers the signing of the Sino-Russian border treaty that nailed down every inch of the border to be his most important 
foreign policy achievement as president of the Russian Federation. That speaks volumes about the relationship. Um, I don't think that Mr. Putin is um, thinking about uh, this growing alignment between uh, China and Russia as the way to to go in terms of foreign policy. Because he uh, understands, as does anyone who does any thinking uh, of the subject, uh, that in this new alliance, if, 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 if it, w- it, it, it were to become an alliance, even an informal one, China would be the senior partner and Russia would be the junior partner. It would be supreme irony that Russia, having refused the position of a junior partner to the United States, would assume a similar position vis-à-vis China. Um, Mr. Putin, I think, is now, and and people around him, are are busy crafting an Asia policy that would not be a China policy. I think until very recently, the Asia policy of Russia was overwhelmingly Russia's China policy. This is changing. There are are attempts to... um, reach out to Japan, a difficult thing, uh, without solving the, the territorial issue, and yet the Russians keep trying. Uh, there is a, an attempt uh, to revamp the uh, traditional alliance with India, who, of course, sees China as its uh, biggest security challenge. There are um, moves to uh, come closer to South Korea, uh, there is uh, an interest in uh, expanding the relationship with Vietnam. So it's, uh, it's not just, uh, and it's not just China, and it's not just Asia. I would imagine that if you look at, uh, at the United States from Vladivostok, it, it, it's, it's very different from, uh, if, you know, from the view of the United States uh, from the European part of Russia. You, you're, you're not, you're not uh, focused on uh, missile defense. You're not focused on NATO enlargement. You're focused on, 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 on somebody else. And the United States may be a very important factor in uh, stabilizing uh, the part of the world which is where Russia's most vulnerable and most underdeveloped portion touches on the most dynamic part of the world. So uh, my... My concern is that if uh, there's a combination of factors, some of them I've already alluded to, uh, the, the rejection of, let's, let's assume for the sake of argument that Mr. Putin's uh, legitimacy is not uh, seriously uh, accepted, uh, not fully accepted by the government here or the governments elsewhere in the West. Let's assume that um, uh, as a result of that, uh, there is uh, no movement to uh, reach some kind of, a, of, an, of an agreement on missile defenses in Europe. Let's assume that uh, Syria and uh, Iran widened the rift, political rift, between Moscow and Washington even more, so that it's not a, a, a rift, it's an abyss. Let's assume that Russia's relations with Europe sour, turn sour as a, as a result of Uh, an appreciable cooling of U.S.-Russian relations. Where would Mr. Putin go? It will not be his choice, but it may be his move. 
So I would, uh, even though it may be against his strategy, he likens himself to Alexander Nevsky. Well, not, not exactly, but he said that Alexander Nevsky was his, uh, one of his role, well, not role, one of his favorite figures in, in, in Russian history. Alexander Nevsky was a 13th century Russian uh, prince who fought against, uh, uh, who was very patriotic, who, whose, whose most important concern was for Russia, Orthodox, Slavic, as it was then. So he fought against uh, uh, the, the Swedes and the Germans, who wanted to um, convert the heathen Russians, in their view, orthodoxy was not really a Christ- Christianity, convert those to Catholicism. He defeated those guys. But as a quid pro quo, in a way, he had to accept the tutelage of the Mongol Golden Horde that lasted for 250 years. Well, it's an interesting analogy, at least, to think of. <laughs> yes, right here. Harrison, can you bring? Uh, Dr. Donard, I'm with CityOne.com and the Catholic Messenger. And, uh, of course, in this country, we see what a role uh, churches or religion is playing in our election. But uh, what, if any, role is the Russian Orthodox Church having in uh, the coming elections in Russia? Well, the church, um, the Orthodox Church, of course, that's, that's the dominant religious institution in, in the country. It has been uh, notoriously close to the authorities um, almost throughout most of its, uh, I would say, since the 17th century, basically. Um, today's patriarch, today's head of the Russian Orthodox Church, is, uh, is a young, well, relatively young person, um, who is um, politically engaged, who is, um, I would call him a social conservative, who likes Mr. Putin's policies because they are socially conservative, who, is, um, who sees himself as a Russian patriot and he likes Mr. Putin's uh, um, patriotic or nationalistic uh, stance on, on, on many issues. Uh, so he supports uh, Mr. Putin. It's not that they issue um, any statement on behalf of the Patriarchy of Moscow in support of Mr. Putin, but uh, the admonitions made by the Patriarch against uh, um, chaos, um, foreign interference, and some other things actually go in the same direction as, uh, as some of the pronouncements from the Putin camp. So I would say that these people are, but that this is what you would expect them to, to be. They are basically a conservative organization uh, that feels itself intensely patriotic at the same time. Yes. Gerig Zirin, Capital Trade. Uh, uh, not all uh, Russia is Russian. There is a, is a Putin recognized in one of his recent articles uh, uh, ethnic issues might be uh, very important. Uh, so what's the uh, uh, impact uh, or role of those uh, relationships within Russia uh, with the non-Russian population in whatever reforms we can expect? Well, it has uh, something to do with this election, but, uh, but clearly this is... Uh 
this is a much bigger issue. Uh, unlike the Soviet Union, this post-imperial Russia is, um, is heavily ethnic Russian, ethnically Russian. So you have 80% of the population who are ethnically Russian, which leaves out 20% which, who are not. Many of them are Muslims. Um, the ethnic relations have become a, a big issue in Russia because of, uh, essentially because of the, not so much because of the war in the North Caucasus, which was uh, the biggest issue, I think, in the 1990s, but with the uh, economic growth and uh, a measure of prosperity in at least uh, the uh, key metropolitan centers around Russia, there's been a, a huge influx of people who seek work in Moscow, Petersburg, Yekaterinburg, and elsewhere. And uh, because there has not been enough uh, uh, soci socialization uh, among uh, uh, the, 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 let's say, between uh, the people, the indigenous people, the people of Moscow, let's say, and the people who come to work in Moscow, uh, this leads to, uh, to serious tensions. Um, it's, it's also the, the problem that, that so many things have happened so quickly and abruptly. For, I, I will give you just my own example. My home in Moscow is uh, four blocks away from uh, Moscow's biggest mosque. And uh, from, for many years, uh, the mosque was there. You, you would notice, a, you know, a congestion of cars on, during Muslim festivals. You would find a few, you know, a crowd of people, but nothing, nothing really special. In the last three years, um, the, 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 sh the very narrow lanes that lead from where my house is to the mosque are crowded by virtually dozens of thousands of young people who look very foreign to me. They would look more like uh, the people I see on television, you know, in Afghanistan or Central Asia. Um, speaking a, a language I do not understand, so I would not be able, able to say whether they're Tajiks or Uzbeks or whoever they may be. Uh, behaving nicely, but all men, all young men. It's, it's a very powerful sight. And fine, you know, you, you can say, you know, th this, is, this is fine for integration, and I think it's fine for integration, but it'll take time. And for many years... They are the, the, the scapegoat, because many people in Moscow are still unhappy. There are more unhappy people outside of Moscow, but even in Moscow they are unhappy people. And those people will, will, will adopt those foreigners as, as, as scapegoats. So that, that's breeding grounds for, for chauvinism, for racism. And when some of those people, because not all of them are manual workers, some of them are millionaires, and some of them are flouting each and every Russian custom that they see. Um, so, for example, there was a, a story that made a lot of noise of uh, a young guy from the North Caucasus who drove his uh, car to the tomb of the unknown soldier and circled around it. You know, it's not a, you know, this is not something that you would find uh, as ordinary. Or there have been cases during the Ramadan that some sacrificial uh, slayings were performed in the open in some Moscow courtyards. Again, this is, you don't really like that to happen in front of your kids. Um, of course, the city government is, is very much responsible for many things. It's responsible for the lack of uh, integration programs, etc. But it's, it's not an easy thing. And then you have, uh, in, in the North Caucasus, you have um, a situation in which 
the areas which were populated by, to a significant degree by Russians uh, are becoming a mo- uh, a mono-ethnic. Say Chechnya before the war had uh, out of one point, I don't know, two million people, it had 400,000 Russians. It's zero today. No one has returned. No one is willing to. Fine, but the number of Chechnya went through a war. In Gushetia, the neighboring in Gushetia, the, 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 the number of official figure for ethnic Russians is 1% or 2%. In Dagestan, where there used to be over 15%, is now down to 3 um, You have uh, very little uh, Russian, ethnic Russian presence in those parts of the country. So that's... Um, uh, that's important. I think that, that catches uh, the government's eye. Mr. Putin's second article, after his, his general strategy for Russia, was on ethnic relations, as, as you probably noticed. So this is a big issue, and um, not one that can be solved easily or quickly. But uh, the important thing is that it's, uh, it's managed, uh, at least in such a way as not to lead to uh, major clashes, disturbances, uh, it's very interesting, and I will just, this will be the last thing I'll say in response to this question. It's very interesting that during the Chechen war, for example, uh, a lot of Chechens were fleeing Chechnya, but many of them were fleeing to the Russian populated areas. And uh, the, the idea was to get to Moscow. So you cannot imagine, say, the Kosovars fleeing to Belgrade. Uh, but this, is, this was the case in, 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 in Russia. And, and even now, as, as, as a Moscovite, I walk around the place quite, quite a lot. I, I usually walk, walk to the office and back, and it uh, keeps me healthy, and I hope. Uh, but I see so many more Asian faces as I, as I walk uh, to the office or back. Never, never been that case before. I mean, I was born and raised in the city. But it's, it's truly, truly different. Fine. I mean, a lot of them are becoming Russians. Because, you know, what, what does it take to be a Russian? You speak the language, you, you carry the passport, and you have a patronymic, and that makes you a Russian. Fine. <laughs> Dimitri, I want to ask you a question uh, uh, looking ahead. Um, you've, you've suggested that Mr. Putin has a fair amount of work to do to rebuild his legitimacy and his credibility or to rebuild consent of the government. When he, when he first came to office, uh, and I had the pleasure of being there and so forth, he, he came with a rather big set of opportunities, uh, economically and I would say sociopolitically. He, he had huge unused resources that were idled by the 1990s, uh, depression. He, um, he had, um, than a rising set of oil prices that, you know, filled coffers beyond anyone's imagination. And in some sense, he had the ability to to shape a recovery that was pretty much of a winner. You know, everybody's wages were going up, people were employed, uh, they were put back to work. And I think if you ask the classic American political question, you know, are you better off today than you were a year ago, the answer for a majority of people was yes. He's now coming into a situation which is somewhat different. Yes, he, he, he got, Medvedev in some sense got a breathing space because the economic crisis and getting through it sort of continued that dynamic in a way. But now you have the problem that it doesn't look, even if oil prices continue to go up, like they will do what they did in the, in the first decade of this uh, 
century. And he doesn't have those unused resources anymore. He's got labor shortages. He's got old aging infrastructure and so forth. All of this has been deferred. So what's, where is he going to try to go? You, you know, he's published all these articles. He's laid out a spending plan that, you know, would even make Congress blush, I suspect. So, I mean, what's he going to do here to, to start the process of filling the expectation, which I assume many people have? You know, he did it before. He'll do it for us again. Yes, I think his own success in his uh, uh, first uh, two uh, presidential terms is now his problem. And you can um, uh, refer to that, but the more you refer to that, um, the more you cast yourself as a person uh, with a past, but not necessarily with a vision for the future. He has uh, very ambitious plans indeed. For example, he wants uh, Russia to reindustrialize. He believes that a country without an industry is not a serious country. And he believes that you cannot live uh, off gas and oil alone. Uh, I think, uh, let me put it this way. I I don't think that uh, uh, easy resources are available to Mr. Putin anymore. There's, There's no easy resource to be tapped into. Uh, there are some expectations, but they are not as, uh, I would say that they are still, uh, there are expectations, but not, uh, uh, not that high. Actually, the people who expect Putin to perform for them are the people who form his base, uh, the lower classes of Russians, the pensioners, the uh, low-wage workers, the, the, the people who work in in um, rural areas, small town people, those are the Putin, uh, the Putin electorate or the, the, the core electorate of Mr. Putin. And uh, he has uh, assured them that at least the level, uh, of, uh, the, the level of income will not go down and it will actually go somewhat up. Uh, most other Russians don't look to Mr. Putin for... Um, uh, for economic benefits, they more or less uh, know, and the people who protested against Putin uh, do not feel that they depend on Mr. Putin. It's, uh, it's up to them to uh, win uh, uh, bread for their families. Uh, I would say this, if Putin is, uh, is serious about reindustrializing the country, he has to make everything, and there's a lot that can be done by the president of the Russian Federation to make the investment climate different in Russia. Russia is a a country that that still has a huge potential for uh, investment, both domestic and and foreign. Uh, Russia is a country that uh, can increase its uh, its wealth tremendously if only uh, uh, it were made a country safe for, for doing business. Mr. Putin has been talking about that, as Mr. Medvedev has been talking about that. They all are talking about that. There's very, there are very few things that are happening in that area. So I would say that without a massive uh, change in the way that uh, climate, that that business is, that business, uh, that, that people are, are, are doing business in Russia, without uh, change in the investment climate, Mr. Putin's uh, ambitious plans 
will come to naught, afraid to say. All right. We've got time for it. Let me take a couple of questions, and then we've got about three or four minutes for Dimitri to wrap up. Uh, Mike, uh, let me take yours, and then we'll go to the back. Uh, Mike Halsell, Center for Transatlantic Relations, Johns Hopkins Sice. Uh, Dimitri, I'd like to get back to Jim's initial question about U.S.-Russian relations, uh, in particular the uh, PNTR question. Uh, for years it revolved around the Jackson-Vanik Amendment, which has been completely out of date. Obviously, there's been free immigration for 15 years, 20 years or so. So uh, people commenting on the debate in the United States, with the exception of the, of the flap about the bogus phytosanitary restrictions on poultry 10 years ago, with that one exception, it seems to me that people in Russia could argue the Americans, some Americans are using this just as a way to be malicious against Russia. It's completely, completely bogus. But now we have the Magnitsky uh, legislation that Senator Cardin, who is clearly one of the more enlightened, progressive people in the U.S. Senate, was introduced and supported by uh, people like McCain, which gets really at the heart of some of the of the untoward sides of the of the Putin rule. I mean, a man who was a whistleblower and in, instead was accused of being the the uh, perpetrator and then tortured to death in prison. My question is simply: Do you think there's any chance whatsoever? And incidentally, I think they'll separate that out, and I think we will vote for PNTR because we'd be shooting ourselves in the foot, as you say. But the debate will occur. Is there any chance whatsoever that there will be space in the media to talk about the real substance of the Magnitsky legislation? And if not there, on the blogosphere? I mean, I see that it's qualitatively different from Jackson Vanek in the past. Right. Uh, Dimitri, let me take yeah, sure. a couple of other questions. Mm -hmm. Yes, in, in the far back yeah. Hi, thanks. I'm Katie Fox from the National Democratic Institute. Um, I want to go back to, at the very beginning, you said that the people who are out in the streets have new issues. Um, can you frame what you could, how, how would you frame those issues? And then also, do you think that the political reforms that are under consideration, such as more political parties being registered and election of regional governors, um, will those, will those demonstrators be able to use those mechanisms to realize success in the issues that they care about, or are they looking for something more? All right. Uh, let me let Dimitri answer these and, and then maybe have a final word because we're just about out of time. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Um, Michael, I believe that uh, it's likely, in my view, that uh, Jackson Bannock will be repealed, but Magnitsky will be, um, will be ushered in. Um, there are two ways uh, that Mr. Putin, and this, is, this, this goes to the heart of this 50-50 answer to Jessica's question. Uh, you can uh, rile against uh, the U.S. Congress for interfering in your domestic affairs. You may say that, as you said, um, uh, it may be construed as a malicious uh, attempt. They don't care about what's happening in the country. They just hate the country. They just hate us. It was... Uh, Jackson Vanek then, it's Magnitsky today, the result is the same, so those guys. Uh, that, that's one kind of a reaction, and I think it would, uh, it would be very unproductive or counterproductive. I think it will be, um, uh, it will not clearly improve the, help improve the relationship. 
But uh, you may uh, do something else. You can go to the heart of the Magnitsky case. And frankly, I don't believe that Mr. Putin has any, I mean, he has any interest in, in, in this whole business. It's, uh, it's, and it's, it's, it was happening somewhere in the middle level, you know, some mid-level officials in the uh, police department or the MVD, the Interior Ministry of Russia, were accused of, uh, by Magnitsky of uh, having uh, defrauded the state, right? Uh, so Mr. Putin clearly has no... Um, no interest in protecting those guys. The problem is uh, something that I mentioned before. Uh, this uh, pervasive corruption, which is a feature of the system, which means that you, it's not those lowly people, but those lowly people are part of, it's, it's like a brick from the wall. You can, you can well, you can take it out, but then the whole thing will collapse. And uh, Mr. Medvedev uh, replaced uh, dozens of senior police officers, generals they are called. Um, many of them actually are facing charges that, uh, that go way beyond uh, uh, retirement, forced retirement. Uh, the reason they're not acting against those is because um, that's, that's the system that they have. That's the system that's been serving their the interest of power preservation, and they wouldn't move against them. But uh, this is a, a very interesting and important question. If Mr. Putin decides that for some larger reason, and I will not say that the likelihood of that is zero. I, I would say it's not very high. But if he decides to actually start dealing with at least some elements of corruption within the MVD, uh, it's a disgrace to Mr. Putin, and I would say it's a disgrace to me as a Russian to hear U.S. Congress discussing and debating and deciding potentially on that issue. It's, it's, it's a Russian issue. The Russians should be doing that. If somebody else is doing that, it means that you, know, you guys are either uh, you know, impotent or you guys are too corrupt to deal with that, which may be, both things may be true to some extent. Um, if Mr. Putin decides to move against that, not under U.S. pressure, but because he wants to have a clean house in the police department, he wants uh, doesn't want crooks there. I mean, he those you know at least mid-level crooks. Uh, he never met them. He doesn't know them. Doesn't know them. He wouldn't he wouldn't bother. Uh, if he moves against them, it'll be a different case. But I don't. Or if he if he is uh, uh, prevailed upon by. Uh, by the political situation in Russia, if it becomes the uh, the uh, the demand of the Russian Duma, or let's say somebody in the Russian Duma, why should Congress? I mean, someone in the Duma may say, uh, from a party that is uh, in general loyal to the system, you say, well, I'm loyal to the system, but let's investigate this. And uh, we've, we've seen some of those people, some of them coming from the formerly from the security services, who've been taking a very, very uh, hard stance on corruption. Say, Gennady Gutkov, for example, from, uh, from Just Russia Party. So that, that may change things. Uh, I, I would very much hope, I don't know what it will be, I hope that the Russians will deal with Magnitsky and, uh, and let the U.S. Congress do with, uh, deal with uh, uh, more important issues for the United States. Um, now, as to the um, question about the new issues, 
the new issues, I think, deal to uh, uh, an increasingly... Uh, it's in, in the past, I think, when there was a protest um, against Mr. Putin, it was hundreds of people, and this is one question that he should be asking himself, even if you accept the State Department as the, you know, as the... Uh, as the mastermind of it all. You should ask yourself the question, the, state, the Department of State has been there since the late 19th century, late 18th century, uh, and if they've been at their work for, for a long time, why is it that uh, until December 2011 there were hundreds of demonstrators and hundreds and hundreds and never more than hundreds? And why from December 2011, there were thousands, and then those thousands turned into dozens of thousands, and then they turned into over 100,000. So what's, what's the, the problem should not be increased fi- funding uh, from the Department of State, something else. But uh, in the past, I think, uh, the issue that the opposition uh, put to the fore, and the opposition was primarily liberal opposition, so they put issues such as uh, uh, human rights in general, uh, political rights of Russian people, um, democracy versus authoritarianism. Those were the issues that people talked about. Today, it's uh, because society has matured, society has interests. It's more about, let's say, the business climate you hear from the business part of society. It's more about uh, students' rights you hear from the students. It's more about... So uh, each... Um, group of Russians uh, is, let's say, is coalescing into a a social force of sorts. And those social forces are uh, challenging the government with their own agendas, which do not always coincide. It's a very diverse thing. So Russia is maturing uh, as as it should. Um, But uh, will all those things, uh, more political parties, will those uh, things give... uh, uh, protesters a voice. Uh, I think that will give them a voice, but it'll be up to them to perform. You can, you can no longer be able to say we would, we would win the presidency of Russia if only Putin allowed us to appear on television. This will no longer be a sellable argument in any audience, including this one. So uh, this is a reality check, what's happening. And uh, there's no question, of course, that the government uh, will do anything and everything to uh, preserve the current status quo. You would expect them to go to great lengths. To They will not be uh, busy bringing their own demise uh, forward. You cannot rely on them for doing this. They'll be, they'll be pushing back. But it's, it's politics, and it's, uh, you know, it's going to be more lively. The thing about Russia is that, uh, you know, it's... it's it has become awakened. It's become, um, and this is the beginning. Of, this is not the end. This is not even the beginning of the end, as somebody said. It's the beginning of the beginning. So there'll be more interesting things ahead. Uh, Russia is a place to watch. It's, uh, I think it's, it's an important country. And I think it will become more important if uh, the right kind of change happens in Russia within the next uh, several years. Uh, if, on the other hand, if it does not, then Russia will probably have to go through one of those uh, periodic upheavals, turmoils, and then I will say, God save Russia. Well, Dmitry, I want to say uh, thank you very much for this. Um, 
It does seem to me that you will have further opportunity for analysis and assessment of where your country is going. And we look forward to you sharing it with us again in, in a few months. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.